0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our visitors and people I bump into at the shops. It's good to see you this morning. I'm just going to pray before I start because I'm not feeling great at the, at the moment. I just want to study myself. And I want to have a precursor to what we're going to talk about today, we're talking about creation. And um, my first word before we pray is please don't freak out. <laughs> just relax. It's all going to be good at the end. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great goodness to us. We thank you that you are the maker of heaven and earth, that you are the triune God, Lord of all creation. You are the one who has brought us into being, not to dispense with us, but to gather us to yourself in relationship in your presence we just glorify your name now for the gift of your son and the sending of your spirit into the world and fulfilment of the promises you made to Israel for the sake of the whole world. We thank you that we're part of such an amazing story and that even the small part that we have to play um, finds its meaningful way to your great story. Help us now as we think about your word as we uh, look at the Scriptures, as we think theologically about the meaning of those things and what they mean for our life and for our engagement with the world around us. Help us to encourage one another and think these things through well, we ask in Jesus' name. Please check the input terminal as my first... um, Uh, first part of my message here today. There will be no sermon, there will be no input today. Okay, we've been talking about God's Big story, the meta narrative uh, that we find in scripture. Here he comes again. Um, the big story that we find in scripture, the, um, the meta narrative, the story that frames everything else. Uh, the Christian philosopher my name of David Holly says that everybody is looking for what you might call a life orienting story. We all need to find our way through life. We all need to understand why we do what we do. Does it matter? Um, are there things we need to change or overcome? What's the nature of our own life? Um, Are we good and complete in ourselves just to be celebrated? Are there problems with us that need to be overcome, changed or challenged? We need to have some sense of actually what the world is about, what the human uh, place is within that story. And of course, what we're going to talk about today is what does it mean to actually be in a world created by a good and loving God? Maybe a little bit, but that's mainly for next week. What's wrong with the world and with ourselves, but also what's the destiny um, for this world that God has in fact made? What we're talking about is creation and you would say God's intentions for us. Now it's very easy for us, of course, we've talked about Genesis, we've just had a fantastic kind of a dramatization um, about Genesis. I just want to have a think about the notion of creation. We're not going to go diving deep into Genesis, but we will mention a couple of things. And there are more things for you to go and think about and investigate, ask questions about and continue with discussion about as well. Okay, so as you'll remember, we were talking about the idea of there is a story in six acts. The idea that there is a world that's made by God, that there is a form of disruption. There we've got four, which is the traditional word that Western theology in particular has used for this idea. There is the emergence of Israel, the calling of Abraham, a covenant made, and a people, um, 12 tribes, uh, given a new place in the world, the, the, um, a promised land, and to live out under God's rule um, a life in fellowship with God. It all culminates, this story, in the coming of the Messiah, the King of Israel, to redeem, to actually bring together all of God's plans at a climactic moment. And then there's us as well. We have a place awaiting what you might say is the new creation, which has begun in one sense among us already, but also waits to be fully consummated. So this week, um, Act 1, creation. you remember as well, and this will reappear each week in a different form, that when we think about creation, about how we are made and the relationships in which we are set, you might think of them in three different ways. And the first one is that you might think about our relationship to God, to in the Old Testament, to Yahweh, I am who I am, the one who stands apart and above and before all of creation, that we worship, serve or adore, all those fantastic words, but our proper relationship to God. To know God is actually to defer and to worship. Him. We find our proper place in the world if we understand ourselves to be creatures under um, a good and loving God, an omnipotent God, the only true God, in fact. But we also have other relationships within this creation as well too, don't we? We have other people that we relate to. We are part of a community. We form part of a people. And there is an important character to that, um, that relationship. Now here I, I, as I said a couple of weeks ago, chose the word friendship which is deeper than just hanging out and, um, you know, going to movies or or something like that, but it's a deep connection of fellowship and and allegiance and commitment to one another. Anyone who's had a true friend knows that there's a depth of that relationship, isn't there? It's not just we went to the footy together and then we're no longer friends because he decided to barrack for Essendon. (laughs) So there's a depth to that kind of relationship uh, there as well. So so friendships, you have to choose one word. That's the one I chose. And then there's also a relationship to the world, which we'll look at as well, which we call, in this case, borrowing from the word that's in Genesis chapter 1, the idea of dominion. Now, that is also can be interpreted in a problematic way. Um, but we'll get to this. But spoiler alert, in a sense, it's actually expressing God's love and care for the creation uh, that he has made. We are part of creation, but we also have a role of caring for it as well. And that's part of our stewardship and worship back to God. Now, we can't avoid talking, um, as I said, uh, about Genesis. Not that I would want to, but it's a kind of text that you need to take a bit of time with. One of the things that we find out with the Old Testament in particular, this is a text written several thousand years ago, different part of the world, different way of seeing things, and in the first instance is speaking directly to them. It's not speaking directly to us in the first instance. We are overhearing. We're we're listening into a conversation through which God will also speak to us. But we shouldn't just assume that we can pick up a 3,000-year-old text and just... Fine, it's in English, ready to go. That's not to put you off from trying to listen and learn to it, but what it means is we need to really sit with it, have patience with it, and actually not necessarily pull our assumptions on top of it, as we will discover. So when Lynette actually said about doing the um Flannelette there thing, I had a sudden flashback to a Sunday school experience. And so I said, oh, hang on, I'll come to that. I'll just leave that for a moment. Okay. One of the things that that we're doing in this series and thinking about a Christian worldview and reading the biblical story is to actually realise that it's okay for Christians to disagree on, we'll say, minors. I think we already agree on that. We also can disagree on sometimes some serious things, but what we don't disagree on or we don't want to disagree on are the fundamental convictions. So our fundamental conviction today is God is the creator of the whole world. God made everything that exists. God is above and beyond everything that exists. These are fundamental convictions. The means by which it happened, we can debate and discuss that. in a sense, we just got to live with it. we are just got to get used to it. And rather than see it as a problem, just see it as part of the reality in which we live and um, don't fret. So what I've got here is a book, Spectrum of Evangelicalism. There's a couple of series by evangelical publishers that take a whole lot of different issues, and then they say, look, here's a bunch of people who are all committed to the authority of Scripture, I uh, want to study it well, understand it well... And they've come out slightly differently on a different issue and then here's another one says well here's actually how you study and interpret the bible hermeneutics and we come out a little bit differently uh, on that too oh here's another one how do we actually go when we're reading the bible think about doing theology how do we actually take what we read in scripture and apply it and connect it with what we understand in the world okay well that's all right it's only three books so oh let's calm down Oh, unless you want to talk about Christ, the Old Testament, church and politics, hell, Um, the the role of the Book of Revelation, there the Lord's Supper, the Canaanite attack, the extent of the atonement, and there's hell again. It just keeps on going. Okay. So we need to relax. You won't necessarily agree with everything that I say, and that is okay. Well... Preach the word in terms of seeing what's there in Scripture, and then, but we have to connect it with how we think about everyday life and we are open to correction um, from one another. Like I said, we're not going to go deep into um, Genesis, but um, we need to think about it as well for talking about creation, surely. Oh, there's more. That's right. Then there's all the disagreements about the relationship between Christianity and science as well. Okay, so there's the thing there. That's what I thought when Lynette said, I'm going to do a flannelette. I suddenly thought, no, got me the animals and we're going to be... No, but what we actually saw there was a fantastic slow outworking of... This is what the story is showing. So making us picture. It's presenting us sort with of a picture of God's uh, creation. But the question is, in part, why? Why do it that way? Um, let's get rid of that. Go away, I tell you. Okay, so the big question is, what do creation stories tell us? And almost every society, including our own, has some kind of, you might say, a, a creation story, some account of their origins. Okay? And usually, in most um, cultures, it's conveyed through what you would say is kind of myth, which for us is a word meaning not true. It's not what the word myth actually means. What a myth is, is it's a story of deep significance that gives us rich symbols to understand the reality and meaning and purpose of the world. Okay? Um, To give you an example, which um, will become obvious in a moment, Psalm 24 tells us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, which is a fantastic Christian and Jewish conviction. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And he's founded it upon the waters. Sorry, what was that? Oh, he's founded the the world, the earth, upon the waters. Okay, what what waters are those? So you might think back to that picture there about God separating out uh, the waters up there, waters down there, land in the middle, and um, working his way through the uh, creation of the world, separating out things and then filling them and populating them with creatures. It's pretty hard to say... Um, that you would take that as being that is the scientific account of how the world has come about um, and unfortunately too many Christians in the past have actually thinking they're defending the Bible but not actually understanding what's going on have insisted to children in particular that they must believe this particular way of thinking about creation when they go to school learn different things and then think well the Bible can't be true therefore the Gospel can't be true and then Uh, slowly make their way out of faith. The Christian faith is an intelligent faith. Christian faith has been critiqued and challenged for over 2,000 years and has continued to come back with, I think, rational and reasonable answers without denying any central truth of Scripture, without whittling away uh, Scripture, although if you come at it from a a modern worldview, you might think that that's the case. Again, more in a moment. So we have these stories that give us a sense of what the world is about, what it's for, what do we worship, and what don't we worship. What is a mere creation? What is actually a divinity or not? In Genesis, again, not. Everything is not there to be worshipped, only the God who made it all. In a lot of ways, of the stories are also projections back of a society as well. So a lot of cultures, um, like the Babylonian culture, for instance, and the kind of environment in which this was written, um, very warlike culture. And so their creation story, which has some elements of overlap with what we read in Genesis, instead has this idea that, you know, there's a a big God and there's another little God came and stabbed him and stabbed her, her in half, and then made the world out of it, killed it, and so that's how the world exists. It's a culture based on violence and then creates lots of little human beings to run around and do a lot of hard work for the gods. That's the environment in which Genesis is written and you can think you'll read. That's a very different way of thinking about the nature of creation. It's also a very different way of thinking about the status and purpose of human beings. But remember, again, what we're reading, speaking first into that situation... We listen in and understand for ourselves how this relates to our context. It isn't about believing. Either you've got to believe the Bible or science. That is possibly the worst thing that we could project onto young people and ourselves. Um, Another... Another uh, way, which we'll see actually happens time and again, you might be wondering, why does idolatry keep happening in Israel? They don't know who God is. And why do they keep worshipping Baal? Because in that culture, again, there's the the, the idea that there's all sorts of different spirits and gods that around us. If we don't keep them happy, they're going to interfere with things like our crops. And we need our crops. And if the crops die, we're in serious trouble but this the and next it happens twice in a row. So we need to some way relate or later, appease the local uh, gods. That's one of the reasons oh. that Israel keeps sliding into that. It's not that they think, oh, that's that little god is better than our big God. It's that they think, oh, I'm not sure whether our God is going to fulfill his part of the bargain or the covenant. We might just need to appease this God as well with some fertility rituals and so forth um as well so it's a complicated world in which we sort of think about um some of these things and then we've got to think about our own world as well don't we so look dorothy are these your um your holiday photos what about that one what about that one what about that one yeah, what about, that one? yeah. What about that one as well okay that No. What about that? (laughs) No? Okay. You look at our world, we think, how amazing. And er things that we've learned and understand about the created world now um, wouldn't even occur to um, to the ancient Near East. Wouldn't even occur to a lot of people, uh, you know, early in uh, this last millennia. We have an understanding of the world which... um, surpasses in a lot of ways what's gone before we know things about particles like this we know things about galaxies that with numbers of distances and the number of stars that just you can't even contain in your head just you know something times 10 to the 35 something or even more than that who could even understand all of that you don't have to either choose between a cosmology a way of understanding the world that one sees in the Bible or what one sees here. Because they're doing different things. If you're reading Genesis 1, okay, you're going to see a different picture of the world. I want to distinguish between two different things. okay. There's creation as you open up the Bible and you say, oh, here's, here's the first story, if, if you like, within Scripture. okay, And you can read it along um, like you would open up any book. And, um, and move through it. What we're talking about though, is more the idea of what does creation actually tell us? What does it mean uh, for us? Not just a kind of as an event that happened back there, but a way of seeing the world, part of our worldview. How does it, what does it actually mean to think about us living in something which is creation? And so that's the idea of creation in a meta-narrative. So, even though scientists can talk, and I'm not super sceptical of science um, at all, actually. Um, I think, um, as mentioned a little bit later, Christianity has had a lot to do with the rise of science. The Christian worldview enabled science to get off the ground in a way that it never did in China, in the way it never did in ancient Greece. What was it that was distinctive about the Christian view of the world that enabled science? To get off the ground in Europe. But as much as we know and learn, that still doesn't really tell us what the universe is about, what it means, does it? If you think about uh, Blaise Pascal, famous scientist in Europe, in modern Europe, um, Christian philosopher, the- theologian, as he discovered, as you know, As we begin to understand the size of the universe and the distance of stars and things like that. Even as a Christian, he said his response was: the silence of infinite space frightens me, terrifies me. Everything that we that we know and learn about the universe has some impact upon how we think about our meaning and purpose in the world. Do we matter? Does anything that we actually Do matter. I was going to put a picture up there, but I, I can't. Of a chicken crossing the road. Says, well, why did the chicken cross the road? And the chicken says, why do we do anything at all? And then next scene, he kills himself. Um, So that's a little bit of French existentialism there for you. Um, Do we matter? What? Why does what we do matter? Um, and can we find that reason either within ourselves or within our place, within an immense universe where we are little tiny dots or little tiny dots within tiny dots? Okay. So instead what we're thinking about is, is creation and intention. So when we think about Genesis, what was it that we say about creation? Well, the first thing is that our stories celebrate the freedom of God. God does not have to create a universe. Creation doesn't come out of God's being. Creation is a completely free act of God. He doesn't owe his creation anything. Only what he decides in his love to, to do for it. And God has unlimited power. He effortlessly speaks and creates and sets things in good order. That is actually the main point of what Genesis is talking about. Okay, so now we need to think about cosmology and worldviews. A&E is ancient Ericsson. When you looked at the the, um, the flannelette presentation there and see that as a dramatisation of what you're reading in Scripture, how do you... How does it make you feel? You've all been to school, you've done your science classes and so forth. Is there? It's hard for any modern person not to be reading Genesis and to think in the back of his mind, science, science. At the same time, did that stir up anything in you, or did you just sort of go, yeah, "It's all good," compartmentalised, or up uh, talking about different things? How did it make you feel? How does this make you feel? This is one of the sort of things, that as soon as you go to a um, theological college and you start going through the um, Old Testament and you get to Genesis, you get a, often get a picture um, like this. How did the ancient Near East people, in Israel included, think about the world? That's a little bit different to the picture that we had there before about galaxies and things like that, our, our place within that. But you can picture that from the way that, um, that was explained in Genesis there. There's the waters up there, at the top. There's the waters underneath. The Lord has planted those pillars, foundation upon the waters below, Psalm 24 and other places. And the land is in between. And then there is water creatures. There are land creatures. There are sky creatures as well. And then up there as well, the water comes from up there and from down below. Um, And then on the great uh, firmament above, we have the stars, the moon and the sun. Now, if you look at that and go, oh, my goodness, it means the Bible's not true, you've again missed the point of what we're reading. Because... What it's doing in the first place is God con- well, let's say, condescending, stooping down, stepping down to explain something about the nature of the creation using the images of the time and, frankly, not giving a hoot about the what we would later call a scientific account of the universe. Okay. And it wasn't for them to go, right, we want to hear more about the columns, let's do some investigation into that. It's just the given understanding of the world, the phenomenology, you might say, how it appears and put into a sort of picture form. So that's the idea of what it, um, what it looks like there in Genesis and in the Psalms and the Book of Job and that as well. And the truth of God, the Word of God, can come through that without any trouble at all because it's not trying to teach you that this is really what the world is like as opposed to science. Okay, It is within the framework of ancient Near Eastern worldview, a way of conveying the importance of that. So what do we learn? We learn that actually the star and the moon and so forth in the sky, they're not gods. They're not gods up there waiting that you need to pray to and make sure you haven't missed one. And on a very clear night, you go, oh, my goodness, this is more than I expected. Um, It's going to keep me busy for a while. They're not deities or anything. They're lights. Okay. Now, either we can get hung up on, oh, but I know there's nothing above the lights, or the message is, don't worship the lights. And we don't do that anymore because living in a world influenced by Christianity, we don't think that way anymore. So maybe that's slightly a message that doesn't um, strike us as important, but in the ancient Near East it was, to actually learn that these are not uh, spirits, beings, angels, etc., that you need to interact with. Okay. So what do we actually learn in Genesis chapter 1? A few things. One thing is you keep on seeing the refrain that everything is good, very good. And that's kind of where we want to really think about um, today. Christians sometimes can get locked into an idea almost like, right, what do Christians think? Christians think everyone's evil, everyone's really bad, the world doesn't matter. What matters is we need to tell them about Jesus. When they die, they'll go to heaven. There is not a creation theology in that at all. But creation theology is all through, not just um, it's in the New Testament, but it's also through the Old Testament, of course. The book of Proverbs is all about how do you live well in this world, understanding that there is an order to things. Okay, It's important that we live in this world. God has a purpose for it. He wants us to know how to live in it well. That's part of what wisdom it's about fear of the Lord, gives us wisdom to live well in the world, that we would do good and we would do well. It wasn't perfect. So God didn't look at everything and say, mm, perfect, finished, done, all good. Now, we can have a sense of that, and partly this uh, the influence of that is from some of the early church fathers, particularly Augustine. We think about the Garden of Eden, the idea that everything in the beginning was perfect. If something is perfect, well then, there's no way down, for it to go down, because that would actually indicate there's some lack of perfection in it. God is perfect. Creation is not perfect. It never was but it was good. What does that mean? Well, again, we need to go not just sort of think about what the word means to us, but the ancient near recent setting again. What does it mean? It means the world is fit for purpose. It means the world does exactly what God wants it to do and he has a future for it. Okay? It wasn't that he finished and all done, we've reached the end of all things. It's the beginning of all things. God has created a world that he wants us to live in and he has a purpose for it. He has a perfection awaiting it. And we know that because we've read the end of the book as well, haven't we? That our redemption is not just a return back to the garden where history is meaningless. It's not that everything was perfect back then, but then (coughs) imperfectly um, it um, got damaged and fell and so forth. And then we need to repair that through the work of Christ and then we go back to there again. The end of the book of Revelation, might say so the capstone of the canon, is a rather heavenly city descending onto earth, a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, at the centre of which is a lot of uh, Eden imagery, isn't there? The tree of life, the leaves, for the healing of the nations. It's like a garden city. It's like history, technology, everything you can think of all brought together in God's presence, uh, under God's rule living forever um, among mortals, become immortal. So the goodness of creation is our fundamental truth. It doesn't mean perfection, but neither does it mean, of course, that, that because there is sin and there is evil in the world, somehow or another the goodness of creation has disappeared. So next week we're going to talk about what we say, the disruption of sin, of idolatry and all those things, of evil in the world. And that is another thing we need to think about. But sin is parasitic on God's good creation, okay? Sin is not fundamental. Sin is something which is invaded or corrupted or defiled, you might say, God's good creation. But any time we think about any part of life, the beginning part of a Christian worldview, as it is the beginning of the Christian narrative, is that this is good. Do you go to work? How do you think about your work? Well, it's just a necessary evil. And some people's experience might feel like that. But fundamentally, the idea of work is a good thing. It's part of God's good creation, even in Genesis 2, where Adam and Eve are to tend and keep the garden. not a big fan of gardening myself. But nonetheless, the idea that actually our work is um, fundamentally good, distorted in some ways by sin, and subject to the redeeming work of Christ and the sending of the Spirit. It's a good thing. Maybe we don't need to worry about the um, environment, as we say, because in the end we're all going to die and then we will leave this place for another. Uh, No. God will renew his world. We'll talk about that later, Romans chapter 8. That creation groans now, waiting for the manifestation of the, of the uh, glory of the sons of God, hoping to participate in some way in that. The current world matters. You do not trash your father's world. Okay? But well, what does that look like? In some worldviews, we're so deeply connected to the world and kind of in such a continuity with it, we have a romantic idea of it. It can't be developed. It can't be um, changed in any way. We just need to live in a kind of a very... um, What would you say? Out in the bush, a little bit of clothes, um, and uh, we just need to live sustainably forever. No room for actually development and technology. No room for um, any kind of um, moving beyond a kind of a... A romanticised primitive state. All cultures, really, seek to develop the world in which they live, and that is part of dominion. Even in the book, you know, the um, uh, Garden of Eden. Think about this mention of precious stones and so forth. It's not to sit and go, just keep walking past that and like precious stones. Great. There's an idea that that's actually somehow supposed to be used and utilised and developed as well. But are there Edges, are there areas of development which we just take too far, that we don't live within the limits of God's creation? Do we actually um, exploit, in a way, these good things that God has given us um, and not understand the limits, actually, of how we should do it? So there's a moral dimension to this, God's good creation. There's a critique for us as well as in there, how is it that sinfulness distorts um, the way that we treat creation? Okay, so next, another important thing that comes out of this, of course, is the idea of the image of God. Um, What do you think the image of God is? I'm just going to throw it to you for a moment. Again, one of my traps. Um, So I should also have things saying no, no, no. Go for it. I love the image of God sitting up on a Okay, so image of image of God in Genesis chapter one, human beings in the image of God. What does that mean to be made in the image of God? Okay, now one of the interesting things is that the idea of the image of God has been stuffed full of all sorts of different ideas, trying to find locate okay, what is the thing, what's the thing that makes it special that we could say that's the image of God. So some see the male, female bit uh, there as well, and that therefore expresses that image of God is to be able to have relationships, or that. It's about spiritual relationship to God in some form or another. And, of course, part of our discipline as readers of the Bible is to go back and say, what did it mean in this first instance? And interestingly, if you think about the word image, what's another place that image shows up in the Old Testament? What was that? Interesting, yes. Anyone else? No, because there isn't anything else. It's images, idols, yes. And what is an idol? An idol. An idol is the image of a god. And what's it for? It's to represent the presence of a god in a particular place. It's a point of connection for people to come and commune with that god. It has, in a sense, a dominion aspect to it as well. This is this god's place because the idol has been put there. And everything around it is to have allegiance to it. That's the idea of the image of God. Now, initially, we're made in the image of God. We're not made the image of God. So it's almost like there's a little bit of a disconnect. But we know in the, in the New Testament that um, there is one who is called the image of God. Who is? So let's go answer. Is there any of us? Jesus, this is what you say. Jesus Christ, the image of God image and true image and likeness of god but here human beings are said to be that as well so it's used positively we represent god in the world we express his loving dominion in the world we express god positively to one another part of it is related to the idea of dominion but it's not exhausted by that it's about representing God and it's about connecting with God. So it actually has the element that element of that as well. But it's not that there's a particular part of us that is the image of God. It's not like we have a thing within us that's the image of God. It's not that our spiritual nature is the image of God and the body doesn't matter. You'll notice that in all of this. this is a very material kind of account of creation. Human embodied beings are made in the image of God. In their totality. Not a particular part of it. And It's not a particular function. It's who we are. We're built, we're made, created to reflect God and to interact with God. To represent him in the world and to connect. So it's no surprise then in a Christian worldview that we think about ideas about dignity and um, uh, equality or even sacredness of life and things attach themselves very readily to that idea. We are not dispensable. We're not to be thrown away. We are important. When we work with others in the workplace, when we have bosses and employees and things like that, there is a fundamental equality and commonality amongst us that we are made in God's image and should be treated with that kind of respect and dignity. That we are each important, not based on our capacity to do a particular thing, but that we have a fundamental uh, Dignity that is bestowed upon us in relation to our creation and our vocation that comes out of that. It's not based upon performance. If, as I said before, the idea of creation care is important, which it is, a legitimate response to everything that God has made, how much more extravagant should our response to one another be, given who we are are made to be and what we will become. It's what you might call the importance of human flourishing matters to Christians, but you wouldn't always know it. So people sometimes influenced in the past or in the deep cultural um, influence that Christianity has had upon the world... Treat people differently. Bruce often talks about this, actually. Um, you think back to you know what it was like to live in the first century in Rome. The Christians made a difference because they saw people differently. Made in God's image and redeemed in Christ to participate in life with God. Compared with you're a slave, you don't matter, you are property. At any time, including in... Um, Later, America and other places too. Any time human beings are treated as property is a fundamental betrayal of what God has made us to be. It does make you wonder, in our society as well, that the loss of the idea of the image of God, because it's tapped into the biblical story, it's tapped into a theological understanding of the world, that if that disappears, how are vulnerable people treated in our society. I'm not going to say it as a, um, uh, give a position on this or anything, but you have to ask a lot of the discussions in relation to both the beginning of life and the end of life often have difficulties in affirming anything in a human being's life apart from autonomy, the ability to make choices, rather than seeing embodied existence in the image of God as being a fundamental gift and something to be protected. As a secularist, um, where is the significance of a human being? Why not say the world is here for the strong? Why not say the powerful, the rich and so forth can use their power and wealth to use others and then dispense with them? Why, if they're not contributing sufficiently to the economy, should we treat them um, with more respect? Why not just put them aside and say, well, they're not really, con- they're non contributing zero. And so <laughs> there's no real um, purpose, I think, for yeah, really taking care of them. They've made their own choices. We have no solidarity with them. Well, that's a pretty dangerous place to go. OK, very quickly, cool. just a couple of other little things. So, think about a worldview. These are the fundamental things that Genesis is telling us, Genesis chapter 1. The goodness of God's world as the basis for thinking about everything. Before you start talking about sin and so forth, celebrate the goodness and beauty of everything that God has made. There's an order to creation as well. But you might say there has an element of flexibility to it as well. Like sort of It's like ordered openness, structured openness. They're structured to the world. You can't just do anything you want, but it's also open to a whole lot of different possibilities. Unfortunately, some of those are sin. But in a technological society and in a liberal society dedicated to autonomy, we're often pressing against barriers, the borders, the limits of what we think we're being held back. We're sort of push a use of technology in a way that sometimes can transgress um, the order of creation that is given to us. As an element or a course, medicine and so forth is always pressing against, saying we're not just going to succumb to disease or uh, other infirmities and so forth. We're going to investigate and think about how we can, within creation, uh, change that. But there's also often a pressing against that as well, maybe overstepping. Our boundaries. So I said maybe there because, again, that's uh, an opinion from last week. There's a sense in which we uh, don't always want to accept who we are within creation as well. Okay. But we might think about issues also of sexuality and so forth. Unfortunately, is that even raising this topic quickly gets weaponised against people. Ah, you don't fit with um, this particular idea. There is an order within creation and people for a variety of reasons either feel out of sync with it or engage in practices that might be out of sync with it. This is not a place to weaponize that. This is a place to say, okay, what does it mean to live in a creation where I feel might feel out of kilter? And how do I relate to God in that circumstance? Issue. Raising that as an issue out there. am not going to talk about that now. Two more things. We have to think about As Psalm 104 does, getting ourselves away from a misconception of a perfect creation where there is no suffering, there is suffering even in creation. An elephant goes for a walk in the Garden of Eden, let's say, and death and carnage follows behind him. There aren't any elastic ants in the Garden of Eden. There is suffering, there is death and so forth, even before we start thinking about a fall predation, and even here in the Psalms, God is the one who gives the the food to the lion, goes back to his den. There's a whole lot of different um, areas there where we can actually step beyond what the text is actually telling us and make bogus scientific claims. Romans 8 tells us that creation is waiting, as I said, to escape the futility of death, but to live instead in the goodness of what is to come, the glory of God coming to the world, Through the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. So to finish, creation is not the last word, but it's an important first word. Christians often, in talking about sin and redemption, are talking about those initial acts in the um, in the Bible. There, so often go straight to act. What would you say? Aspect of Act Four. So Act 2, jump to Act 4, the Messiah, the death of Jesus, and then the end. The Bible story is a story of creation to new creation. It's a story of God's intentions and his victory and the consummation, completion of all his promises, and then an interesting story on the way through where things, human responses and so forth, are out of kilter with what God intends. But in the end, God wins. But it's creation to new creation. And here, I just want to emphasise today that goodness is fundamental. Sin is parasitic. Sin has distorted the way that we interact in God's creation. But Calvin, who might associate with things like total depravity and the excessiveness of human sin and so forth, talks about the creation as a theatre of God's glory. He sees it, again, fundamentally, it's a good biblical thing, As this is the arena in which God acts, it is good, God has made it, it matters, and we should celebrate it as such. We don't forget what's to come, we're not going to forget about what's coming next week as we think about sin and idolatry and all those sorts of things, but you have to start with the celebration of what God has made, and as redeemed people of God, thinking ahead where we're going, our desire to live a redeemed celebratory life even in the midst of opposition and evil. I'll close there. And we're going to have uh, communion uh, Surely, We're going to meet around the Lord's table with a fantastic celebration of God's goodness as well as we have the bread and wine together. So let's pray and uh, let's come and gather around the Lord's table. So those who are bringing up the... Juice and bread and so forth, you should go and get that now. And I will pray as long as it takes you to get back. I've just changed my mind. How about this? I'll open in prayer. And if you've just got a few, just a sentence or a couple of short words you want to say, giving thanks to God for his goodness in creation... And yeah, just please do that and then I'll, I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we said, we're so thankful to be part of your good creation and we are um, sorrowful and despair that the way that your world has been treated, that the entry of sin and evil into the world has distorted and abused and ill-treated the so many good gifts that you've given us. We thank you for the arts, we thank you for science, we thank you for food, we thank you for family, so many different things. So now just as a congregation, we just call out to you now, thanking you for your gifts. So Father, we come together before you now, thankful for the world in which you've made and which you love. We thank you for the world that you have committed yourself to and that you have joined yourself to forever the incarnation, that you are forever joined to your creation through the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are in union with us through your Holy Spirit to build us and the whole of creation together as a temple for in which you dwell in fellowship with your creatures. We look forward to that great glorious day. In Jesus' name. So come now and...